Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're looking at the last verse in chapter 3 and the first few verses of chapter 4. We are nearing the end of our annual series on the habits or the disciplines of grace. Next week we'll have one more sermon on the discipline of prayer. Uh, Brandon Potvin will be preaching for us. The following week we'll have a guest speaker. He's speaking for us at the marriage retreat this year. Um, And then uh, very shortly after that we'll move back into Philippians. So it's been a while since we've been there but we look forward to Getting back to Philippians. This series is a topical series. If you're visiting with us, I would want to explain that our normal pattern, our habit, is to look sequentially, verse by verse, through a book of the Bible. And yet it is helpful often to take time aside to look at a topic, how scripture addresses an area in our lives. I'm also sharing with you this morning how God has been shaping my convictions about his word and our worship. So this is maybe even a little bit different than a normal topical sermon that I might bring before you. This sermon I'm intending to help to continue to bolster, to deepen, to shape our expectations, our instincts as we come to God's word on a week-by-week basis, on a daily basis. I want our impulse to be shaped by what we see here in God's word this morning. I've shared, I believe, this illustration with you before, but I think it helps raise a question we need to consider together. Pastor and professor Jim Shaddix begins his book on preaching with this story. He describes a preaching conference that was held several years ago at the Westminster Chapel in London. The meeting featured some of the greatest preachers and teachers from around the globe. And the focus of that conference was on the trends in preaching in the United States. The final speaker of the conference was a popular, well-known pastor who was both intriguing and inspiring. His talk was focused on the need for more relevant preaching. In order to illustrate his point, this speaker shared a story about raising his teenage sons. He described a particularly difficult Sunday morning as the family prepared to go to church. Perhaps we can relate, right? It had been a long, hard week, and soon, as can be the case, they were at each other's throats as they're heading out the door. This man then went on to describe his pastor's sermon for the morning. He sarcastically described the sermon as an exposition from the Psalms on how to have an intimate relationship with God. The speaker then confessed to thinking to himself as he left the service that day, Well, pastor, thank you very much. If I ever needed to know about that, I'll have the information. But today, I needed you to tell me how to raise my boys, and you didn't do it. Now, we need to think carefully about his conclusion. Is that how God wants us to view his word? Is that how we're to view preaching? How it connects to me in my immediate circumstances? As if that is my greatest need. Is that how you tend to approach God's word? A recent survey of the worldview of professing Christians demonstrate that many are living a watered down counterfeit worldview that looks more like the culture around them. 
than the biblical Christianity they profess. New findings from this survey, the American Worldview Inventory of uh, 2021 show that nearly four out of ten adults are more likely to embrace elements of what is called moralistic therapeutic deism than other popular worldviews. Now, you're probably thinking rightly, what is moralistic therapeutic deism? Well, I'll explain it in just a moment, but Barna explained this approach to spirituality asks very little of its followers while providing the comfort, convenience, and community that they long for. Simply and objectively stated, Barna goes on, Christianity in this nation is rotting from the inside out. It seems that most of these folks want to do the right thing. They simply have been led down the wrong paths toward achieving that ends. So what is moralistic therapeutic deism? It's moralistic in that it teaches that central to living a good and happy life is being a good moral person. It's therapeutic in that it means it's about providing therapeutic benefits to its adherents. Finding fulfillment in this life is the primary goal. And the deism here is revised by that therapeutic qualifier, making the distant God selectively available for taking care of my needs. Something like a combination of a divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of my problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved. In short, this worldview sees God as the everlasting Mr. Rogers. He's not a helicopter parent, but will act like a kind butler if you need him. Is that how you view God? Is that how you approach your intake of God's word as you listen to a sermon on Sunday morning? As you participate in life group or a Bible study? As you go to the word in your own personal devotions? Now, I'm not saying this is a problem out there. This is a problem for us. I recognize some of these thoughts in my own heart. I remember especially when I was in my later teenage years, I remember truly struggling with the goal of Bible reading. I didn't understand what I was supposed to be doing. It was almost like you think by osmosis. I see the black and white on the page and I'm going to get better in this life. I remember in college, this becoming an especially acute struggle. It's still a struggle at times. I think we want to believe that the word of God is truly powerful. That it's able to change our lives. But so often, our experience of it is something far less than that. We're told and encouraged over and over that we should be in God's word regularly. And we accept that. We want to believe that. We want to practice that. But we still are confused. What are we actually doing when we read the Bible? Isn't it supposed to change our lives? How? How does that happen? We're often left wondering, why why doesn't this happen for me? God's word gives us an answer. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 3. We'll read verse 18 and then down through chapter 4, verse 6. This is God's word to us this morning. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this, this transformation comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Because he's just said in verse 18, we have an unveiled face. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's go to him and express our need for his help as we look at this passage together. Father, we confess that very often we are not even good at diagnosing our need. Lord, we are deceived by our own hearts, by our own motivations and desires. So help us to listen, to be convinced to recognize how you have sought to meet our need through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage this morning, the passages we'll consider together, make this argument. Our God transforms us as we behold his glory in Christ. And what I want to do as we look through these texts is to talk about what that looks like. How does this happen? Now, in the passage lay read for us this morning, Moses sees the face of God and is dramatically affected. That's an understatement, isn't it? After seeing just a glimpse of the back of God, his face is radiant, so much so that he has to put a veil over it for the sake of the people. He's no longer in the presence of God. This is just leftover glory being reflected. Spiritual principle that Paul is expounding upon here in 2 Corinthians 3.18 with this context in mind is that what you spend your time gazing at will mold you into its image. What you fix your gaze on will change you. Or as one author states, what people revere, what they worship, meditate on, gaze upon, they resemble either for ruin or restoration. Notice that as we look at this passage and several others, the Bible uses this idea of sight again and again, looking, beholding, knowing, to describe our inner motivations, our direction, our worship. The point is, it matters where you look. It matters where you look. So this morning we'll examine briefly just two points from this main verse, but also consider many examples of this principle. First, all of God's people are to be transformed as we behold him. In this verse, Paul has Moses and Israel around Mount Sinai in his mind. He certainly is thinking of those scriptures. Moses has been transformed radically by his view of God. This is something no other man can say they've been able to see. The effect is so dramatic 
We know this passage, but think of the drama. The people are afraid. They're like, we, we know Moses. What is going on? What has happened to him? Can you imagine what his face must have looked like for them to respond like that? But Paul now presents a contrast between Moses as the only one on that occasion who saw God and God's people now. He says, we all, believers, we all, Corinthian church, we, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image. In the gospel, all of God's people are able now to see the glory of God. The idea here of looking at something in a mirror means to contemplate it. The idea is to spend time on it, to meditate on it, to think about it over and over again, to gaze on it as something that's beautiful, that's captured your attention. It isn't just a thought that passes through the mind briefly, but a subject to be returned to again and again. Now, as we behold God, as we contemplate who he is, especially who he is in Jesus Christ, we become more and more like him. That's, that's the principle. Progress is possible. And in this verse, it's even inevitable. As we worship God through dwelling on his truth, we are renewed. Doesn't that sound hopeful? Doesn't that sound like what you and I need? Doesn't it feel like sometimes change is not very probable or possible? Transformation and renewal occur as we move from looking at ourselves to looking and meditating on him. Now, I want to show you several examples throughout the scriptures. As I've contemplated this question of how God's word changes my life, I wanted to see if God's word shows me, if this is demonstrated throughout, can I see examples of God using his glory, his character, his person to reshape the thinking and behavior of his people? As I started looking, I couldn't help but see illustration after illustration of this kind of transformation. Consider the ending of the book of Job. Here's a man who has lost so much in a very short space of time. His livelihood is destroyed. He's a wealthy man. We're told several different situations occur, calamities occur, and he loses his vast amount of wealth. And even worse, he loses all ten of his children in one moment, in one calamity. So his sorrow, his heartache is understandably great. This is a man who is suffering. So how does God comfort Job? How does God bring encouragement to him? What does Job need to hear from God in his grief, in his confusion, in his suffering? In chapter 31, Job sins by demanding that God answer him because he says, I have not sinned. He's right there, but he says, God has to answer me. And it's like he's putting God under his authority. God will answer him. But what is striking, 
is that it's not the encouragement or comfort that we might expect. If somebody came to you and they were suffering, we would not think of going here necessarily first unless we were thinking like the Bible teaches us. God begins to question him. He asks him things like this. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Is that a comforting question? He continues, who controls the seas and commands the morning? Does Job know where light and darkness dwell? Does he know where the storehouses of snow are kept? And and we might be thinking, uh, God, didn't you know that I'm hurting? I've suffered the loss of loved ones. I'm not really interested in talking about snow right now. He continues, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? What? God is asking Job about his knowledge of the expanse of creation and Job's lack of control over it. For four chapters, God makes his point. And what is God doing? God's not answering why. He's telling him who. How does this kind of an answer help? It doesn't answer Job's question of why. Why has God allowed him to suffer? Why doesn't God answer that question? Well, We can't know for sure, but we do know this. God knows that that's not what Job needs. God is calling Job to behold him. He's giving him personal revelation. He's showing Job who he is. He's forcing him point by point to meditate, to think about who his God is, his power, his wisdom, his control, his sovereignty. You see, by the end, Job doesn't need to know why because he knows who he's resting in. He knows who does know why. He knows who's in control of every circumstance. What does this produce in Job? Job 42 verse 5. Job responds, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. That's what Job needed. That's what I need. That's what you need. Do you see what God knew Job needed in the midst of this suffering? He needed to see God more clearly. And when Job gets a glimpse of God, he worships. That includes his repentance. That includes his greater trust. God never answers what Job thinks is the right question, the pressing question, the important question. God gives him something better and more important. He reveals more of himself to Job. I've shared this quote with you several times because it's captured my mind. It summarizes what we've seen here. It's from John Piper. He asks, what is the deepest root of your joy? What God gives to you or who God is to you? God graciously gives us a greater realization that our ultimate need is for more of his word, more of his ways, more of him. 
Here's a second example. As Elijah and the prophets of Baal face off on Mount Carmel, what is it that God is seeking to accomplish in order to change his people? They're stubborn. They're chasing after the God of Baal. He sounds a lot like the American dream. He's the God of fertility and prosperity. And they're saying, we want to say God is still okay. We're positively inclined to him. But we also want this God of prosperity to work for us. How will God change their hearts? Maybe you've never looked at it carefully before, but listen carefully to Elijah's prayer. 1 Kings 18, verse 36. At the time of the offering of the sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, this is his prayer, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you are God and that you have turned their hearts back. I want you to know his prayer is not that they stop worshiping idols. It's that they know something that they would say they already knew. It's not know as if in they needed more facts about God. They needed to see and believe and trust and know that he is God. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they worship, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. You see, Elijah's prayer is answered very specifically in the way he prayed it. That's incredible. That's beautiful. That's what you and I need. What brought revival to Israel that day? Beholding God in his power and glory. The people of Israel knew about God, but they didn't truly know him. It was doing nothing for them, so they didn't know him. Beholding is becoming. Transformation happens as we look and see and know God as, as he's revealed himself to us. Over the last few years, I've been so challenged as we've taken time to work through the books of First and Second Samuel. I've been challenged by David's life. I want you to think about it. Here's a teenage boy who God says, you are going to be the king. He's as surprised as anyone. But what's so admirable about David is that as God's plan takes a lot longer to unfold than anyone would have expected and takes these turns and these hardships, David responds with theology, a view of God that holds him firm. And here's the thing that is challenging and convicting and striking to me. Where did he get that view? He doesn't have a completed Bible like I do. He doesn't have an app that has a million different resources so that I can take in God's word. How is he so strong? Think about it. When David explains his reason for facing Goliath, he's a young man. He's made fun of for his inexperience. He says God will give him the victory 
so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know. Israel needs to know again that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear. His view of God shapes how he sees the entire event in this moment of crisis. Again, when David's given the opportunity to take the life of Saul, his king, his father-in-law, his tormentor, his enemy, this obstacle to the fulfillment of God's word that he would be king, what does David do? On two occasions, even when his men say, this is God's plan, they're arguing this is good theology. David doesn't do it. Because he says, that's not the way to honor my God. How does David, with the limited amount of scripture that he has, have these kind of God-centered responses in the most difficult moments of life? Because I want to have that kind of response. How does this young Jewish boy have such strong convictions, deep about the character of God, that he writes over and over in the songbook of the Old Testament, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. This is a man who does what he tells us to do in Psalm 1. He meditates on God's law day and night. He's not just reading the verses and saying, okay, I know what they say. He is dwelling on the person of this book. David gives himself to spending time beholding his God. Think of Paul. He's the second man as we've been looking at scripture That's radically challenged my view of how I walk with God. That's encouraged me to want more, to grow closer to him. Think of his story. He's radically transformed as he sees the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. His eyes literally have scales that fall off them once God restores his sight. He can see God in Christ. He never He never got over this. And that's why he's such a rebuke and a challenge to us. He never gets over this. Even in the hardships of life, he keeps pursuing God. In Philippians 3.10, this is a man who's an expert in the law, who's a faithful evangelist, a church planter, and he still says it's his desire to know him. There it is again. And the power of his resurrection, that he may share in his sufferings, becoming like him. Paul wants to behold him more in order to become more like him. So how do we do this ourselves? Theological counsel for the heart is how I would frame this. What I want you to see, I'm just going to walk through a few passages that we may know well. Verses that we may have meditated on is how the Bible guides us back to the character and works of God. And what I want to shape in our minds is this is how I need to be thinking when I approach God's word. He offers us peace. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. This was maybe the first passage I really gave myself to meditating to. And it has served me again and again and again. And I want you to see the two pieces, beholding and becoming. See if you can identify where they're at. Isaiah 26.3, you, God, will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed or fixed 
on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. Here's beholding. For the Lord is an everlasting rock. Now, just with this first one, I'm going to explain how this happens. When it says to trust God, that's the answer you give to any type of application you say about a Bible passage. What is this leading me to do? Trust God. Well, that's true. But we don't truly feel that and our hearts aren't one to that unless we spend time thinking about what else it says about God. I need to know what it means that the Lord is an everlasting rock. And the more I dig into what that means, the more my heart is one to trust him. If I think the Lord's an everlasting rock, I've seen a rock before, they're hard, they're strong, that's great. How will my trust be shaped? When I meditate on what that means, God is an unchanging foundation for all of life. He is like the mountains that cannot be moved. No one and nothing can change him. No one and nothing can threaten him. Not the greatest powers in all of human history. My God is there for me. He will keep me in perfect peace. If I spend my days and hours thinking about how my God is an everlasting rock, what will that do to encouraging me to trust him? How about Hebrews 13? Contentment. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. That's what we're to become. Notice he tells us how to become that. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Why can I be content? I behold that my God is with me always. And the more I dwell on that fact, the easier it is to keep my life free from love of money. When I'm not dwelling on that character of God, the things of this world, love of money, fear of what happens will come flooding over me. How about anxiety? Matthew 6, God says, do not be anxious about your life. That's the command. That's what we're to become. Do you know we behold him in that text? He says, if God so clothes the grass of the fields, will he not much more clothe you? Do you see what we're doing? We're looking for God in the text, not for me, not for what I'm supposed to do. I have to see who he is before I do what God calls me to do. And the more I recognize his greatness, the easier it is for me not to be anxious. God clothes even those grasses that have disappeared now that it's winter. He'll clothe them again. It happens year after year after year after year. He's faithful. How does that shape my anxiety? Think about another one, Exodus 4. In Exodus 4, God calls Moses to go back to Pharaoh. There's all kinds of reasons for Moses to be afraid. For the fear of man. He was raised in this palace. And he says, God, I I can't go. How does God counsel him? He tells him something about himself. He says, Moses, who made your mouth? Do you see? Beholding is becoming.
There are many, many more that I could point out to you, but what I hope I'm demonstrating is that God calls us to change in these verses, not to just some outward conformity. We're transformed as we behold his character. As we see him. The amount of time you set your gaze on what God is to you will directly affect the change to take place in your heart. Tim Keller points out in his book on preaching, people change not merely by changing their thinking, but by changing what they love most. And the Bible is first and foremost a book about God telling you how much he loves you and calling you to love him. You will be changed as your value for God, as your worship of God, as your love of God increases. Number two, all of God's people are to be transformed as we behold Christ. Paul makes clear in verse six that the glory of God is revealed in the face of Christ. Seeing Christ saves and sanctifies. Transformation of the Christian happens as we meditate again and again on the glories of the person and work of Christ revealed in the gospel. That's why it's right to conclude, preach the gospel to yourself every day. That just means meditate on his glory. Meditate on what he's done for you. Before we are regenerated and born again, we're blind to the glory of God, Paul explains in chapter 4. But when we experience new life in Christ, we finally look with this unveiled face. We begin to see all that we have in Christ, how little we have in the world. Our value system changes. We used to think just the opposite, but now we have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. We see clearly now. That's not to say there's no longer a battle to fight. Satan, our enemy, works hard to blind us and obstruct our view of God. So how do we do this? Three three ways that we can put this into practice. One, know him. If we're to be changed, we must grow in our knowledge of him. Certainly worship isn't just about the facts, but we have to know what God's revealed in the texts of scripture that we might see him and worship him. To behold him means that we must grow in our understanding. We have to study and think about what we read. We have to invest in growing the skill of reading the Bible well. This knowledge is both intellectual and personal. You can't see God unless you read about him in the revelation of God. Jonathan Edwards demonstrates the difference between knowing about something and actually experiencing it for ourselves. He says that a person can describe the taste of honey to someone and can understand intellectually what sweetness means. They have the concept. They've had something sweet before. But until they actually taste the honey for themselves, they don't truly know the sweetness described. And maybe as we began and I described the confusion about how to interact with the Bible, you recognize that's me. How does God want to change you? 
J.I. Packer makes the same point in his classic book, Knowing God. There's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. When you truly know God, you have energy to serve him, boldness to share him, and contentment in him. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. He's saying a lack of knowledge isn't just an intellectual deficiency. Jesus describes the sobering reality in Matthew 7. In verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy, do in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Knowing the facts of the Bible, knowing about God, being familiar with Jesus is not sufficient. Think of it. The Pharisees were masters of the law intellectually. But their hearts were far from him. When Jesus interacted with the demons throughout his ministry, they demonstrated the clearest understanding of who Jesus truly was. They had awesome Christology. Jesus, son of the most high God. But that did nothing for them. In the wilderness with with Jesus, Satan demonstrates he has passages of scripture memorized. And Judas spent years with Jesus and has a personal, familiar relationship with him. Knowledge of the facts of the Bible are not enough. How do we turn knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is demanding but simple. It's that we turn each truth that we learn about God into matter for meditation before him leading to prayer and praise to God. So we know him. Secondly, we worship him. A.W. Tozer wrote in The Knowledge of the Holy, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, he's not trying to say that's more important than the gospel truths itself. He's saying from our side, as we respond to God, how we view God is the most important part of our relationship. He continues, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is as pure or base, low, as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Isn't that the error we bring to the Bible? We often unconsciously make this a book about us. We unconsciously fall into that moralistic therapeutic deism. God, fix my life. That's what I need. No, it's not. We see the Bible working like a body shop works on a car. We think if we just go to the right mechanic, the right verse, our lives will run smoother after a little tune-up. Our expectation must change from a focus of ourselves to a desire to behold him. So we must learn to meditate on the truths of scripture. George Mueller warned, the simple reading of the word of God can become information that only passes through our minds just as water passes through a pipe. If we don't absorb what we read, we will be affected by none of it. Have you ever felt like that? 
you read a passage of scripture and you intended to meet with God and you got nothing. That happens sometimes. We keep going back. But we keep remembering that I'm there to see him and meditate on him. Psalm 34, 8 tells us, taste and see that the Lord is good. John Piper begins his book on preaching this way. People are starving for the greatness of God. But most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. He's saying people are starving for the greatness of God and they don't know it. They would diagnose their need as something else. He continues, the majesty of God is an unknown cure. There are far more popular prescriptions on the market, but the benefit of any other remedy is brief and shallow. Preaching that does not have the aroma of God's greatness may entertain for a season, but it will not touch the hidden cry of the soul, show me your glory. What we are beholding and what we value most is what we become. Worship moves us from doctrine to devotion. This is vital as we interact with God's word. For me, I've made it a habit that as I study a text of scripture, I start by identifying the persons of God. I want to keep this before me. With colored pencil, I highlight each member of the Trinity a different color. This makes me read the passage several times. It makes me begin to have this kind of inclination, an expectation, an instinct. I want to see what God is up to in this text. I want to spend time as I begin to understand all the things that are happening in the passage, meditating on what God reveals about himself. Ask God to help your reading and study of his word lead you to worship. I want to give you three different resources that we can help you with or point you to uh, that will help with this type of a discussion. Uh, this has been a helpful book. It's very small, great to read with your devotions. It's Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ by John Piper. Maybe two pages, a small book like this. You read your text of scripture, you read this in addition. And then this book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. For uh, many preachers, they would say this has been the most influential book in their thought and ministry and life. And one more that uh, the men in our church are doing. Others can do this as well. We are meeting on several different times perhaps throughout the week. But to study the book Biblical Doctrine. Bible Doctrine by Wayne Grudem. And again the goal is not just to say I've got these doctrines all systematized and figured out in my head. What we found that as we study them together and discuss them. We end up saying God you are incredible and incomprehensible. You're amazing. Third, obey him. James says the devils believe and tremble. They know and understand who God is, but they do not worship him and they refuse to submit to him. This is the key difference to knowing whether you merely know about God or if you are changed by him. Do you obey him? Does his word, does seeing him change you? Does it win you? Does it bow you? Just like the Israelites on Mount Carmel, when we see God for who he is, we fall on our faces before him in worship and obedience. 
key aspect to our growing more like him is that we're not interested in doing this alone. So often, that's, that's one of the hardest things. And as Bruce encouraged us last week, that we're meant to do this together. Find somebody else to read one of these books with, to read God's word with, to ask, are, are you beholding him? Are you beholding him? An African proverb says, if you want to go far, go together. The passage leads us to conclude that to be made like him, we must continually behold him. J.I. Packer in Knowing God asks, what were we made for? He answers, to know God. He asks, what aim should we set ourselves in life? He answers, to know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. This is life eternal that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And he asks again, what is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? And the answer is the same. Knowledge, true knowledge of God. Elizabeth Elliot, over the last year or two, has been influential, encouraging to my thinking. She faced incredible hardships in her life. She faced great loss. She was widowed twice. She suffered other losses in ministry. The theft of all her language work with the Colorado Indian tribe. The ministry strife that caused her to leave her work with the Aka Indians in Ecuador. And yet her vision of God gave her a Paul-like perspective on the hardships she endured. And you see that written throughout all of her books. She wrote in one of them, the most overwhelming losses in my life, those I feared most, have in fact been far outweighed by the gain of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. How does somebody say that? after facing those kind of losses that we dread other than beholding her, God. Her grasp of who God is carried her through many heartaches. Your theology, your view of God will give you stability through the turbulence of life, but a small and inconsistent focus on God will cause you to be easily overwhelmed by the storms. Developing this habit of meditating on the person and work of God provides you growth and stability. So here again is another believer who's learned to behold God and she finds stability and depth from that sight. Does that describe you? When I realize that the Bible is not first about telling me what I'm to do, but rather whom I'm to behold, only then will I see it as the miracle of revelation. Only then can I get beyond seeing it as a set of do's and don'ts, as a book that's dry and boring and about people I don't really care about. Only when I realize it's telling me about a person who's incredible and beyond my comprehension will it open to me Grand Canyon-like views of this person who's more awe-inspiring than I can take in in a lifetime. When I understand how the Bible reveals Jesus to me, then it becomes my delight instead of being a mere Christian duty. 
Bible intake then becomes a privilege, a necessity, a gift, something I can't do without. I have to have it. So my prayer is that our view of God's word changes from the inside out. I pray that we would see that through our intake of the Bible, God is giving the most precious gift he can give. He's giving us himself. Do you know that? Have you experienced that? What an incredible gift. So our heart's response should be a prayer. God, help me to know you. Not just know about you. I long to behold you in order to become more like you. So with the psalmist we pray, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. With my whole heart I seek you. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, change our thinking. Change our values. Change our perspective. Move us out of the way. God, we need you. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, may you change the way that we think about you and your word and our worship. May we want to know more of you and not just more about you. Help us to be more diligent and disciplined. That's our responsibility. But as we're told in 2 Corinthians 3, your spirit transforms us. So may we be dependent. God, give us grace to value what you value. May we rejoice. May we have incredible joy at the great gift of the revelation of God that we hold. May we see it as such. In Jesus' name, amen.